We have come now to the final, uh, the final message dealing with the doctrines of grace. Uh, remember, the reason why we looked at the doctrines of grace was because I have determined that for many people, the doctrines of grace really needs to be expounded upon, and we all need to grasp what the doctrines of grace are all about, but how the doctrines of grace should inform everything that we do. And lastly, I wanted to ask the simple question, what is the gospel in the midst of the doctrines of grace? To put it maybe even more frankly, how does the gospel of Calvinism differ from other gospels? And does it make any difference? Is there any difference between the gospel that we would preach to the world versus the gospel that an Arminian person or a person that is not reformed in his understanding of the Word of God, not reformed in their theology, not reformed in their evangelical faith, and how would we differ, and why is it important? Well, obviously, I wrote a whole sermon because I think it is absolutely important, and I've come to John 3 because there we find one of the most beloved texts that is used in evangelism by all people, and rightly so. John 3.16 is so popular, you find it on posters at, you know, sporting events. You see it in the end zone at the Super Bowl. People love John 3.16, and people love to claim John 3.16 is, is claiming more than maybe what John 3.16 is actually claiming, and that is really what we want to investigate here for a moment. But when we look at John 3.16 in its context, the context in which we just read, which very few people do, when do you see the poster in the end zone, John 3.16 through 21? <laughs> you probably are not going to find that poster anytime soon. But it is critical that we understand John 3.16 in its context. And so first, I would want to bring your attention to the word world because it is so absolute. For God so loved the world. And we've looked at this term already. We've examined the fact that when the authors of Scripture speak of the world, when the authors of, of Scripture, when they speak of all people, all, when they use these universal terms what they mean is not that the whole world will be saved because that would end in the heresy that is known as universalism. So it cannot mean that what John is saying, that God so loved the world that he will save everybody, that he will save everyone. And on one simple level, it is as simple as saying God so loved the world, of course, because there is no other world to love. It is this world that he created, and it is in this world that he placed his people and his creation. Furthermore, if we interpret the word world through universalism, then that contradicts and it flies in the face of the clear teaching of Scripture somewhere else. How do you know if your theology is true? If your theology is consistent. You cannot have a universalism coming out of one verse and then something less than universalism coming from a different verse. So, for example, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 14, few will be there that find eternal life. In Matthew chapter 22, verse 14, Jesus says, many are called, but few are chosen. So how does that square up 
with John 3.16 and other texts that speak of God's, what he has done for the world, God's love for the world, God sending his son as the savior of the world, and many, many other texts like that. Well, obviously, we made a distinction between saying when you're talking about all of the world, all of humanity, because here cosmos, the word world, cosmos, is referring to humankind. It is not talking about the created universe. It is talking about man. It is talking about people. It is talking about the mass of humanity. And for whom did Christ come? When it says that that God gave his son. For whom did God give his son? No doubt, God gave his son to this world. He sent him into this world. But for whom precisely did he give him? Well, the second thing is found in that phrase, whoever believes in him. So the answer to the question is really a grammatical one. Uh, I remember uh, listening to popular Christian radio where the hosts on the radio program were going on and on and on about why Calvinism is wrong. And they insisted, John 3.16 says, whosoever will. And I called the radio show out of a zeal and a passion to uh, defend the, the truth of this verse. And lo and behold, I got on. <laughs> and... Um, I got on the radio show and I was allowed one comment and then they cut my microphone off. <laughs> I, and I told the radio host, I said, have you looked at the Greek construction in that verse? It's a participial construction uh, that says pon, ton, pistuon. Do you know what that means? It really literally reads all the believing ones. So... With that understanding, and of course they said, yeah, but that's just kind of general. Where That's over, that's over you know, you're, make, you're, you're making it more difficult than it is. And then they cut my microphone off and I wasn't allowed to interact any further. But that is exactly what this text is saying. That he gave his only begotten son that all the believing ones should not perish. And you say, well, then why did they translate it? Whosoever wills. And really translating committees and scholars have admitted that one of the primary reasons why this this Greek phrase continues to be translated like this by by translation committees is because of the influence of the the, the King James Bible because of the tradition that the and the tradi- the deep tradition that is held and recited that this verse should be read in this way which is really in an indefinite way the problem is is that the greek actually is definite it is not indefinite it is definite it is not whosoever will but it is precisely those who believe will not perish so God sent his son into the world for the believing ones, that they would not perish. And Christ died for those who believe, and those who believe, John has already told us, believe as a result of the gift of God. Turn with me to John chapter 1, verse 12, because this is another point that people really don't like to deal with, but is there nevertheless. John chapter 1, verse 12, tells us very plainly who it is that will believe. It says, John 1, 12, but as many as received him. Now that is 
a reference to faith. To receive him here speaks of faith in him. It would be the same thing as those who come to him. Coming, receiving, those are synonyms of faith in the Gospel of John. Those that receive him, to them he gave them the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, watch this, who were born not of blood, which is talking about human ancestry, nor of the will of the flesh, which is referring to human, human reproduction, nor to the will of man, which is speaking of man's volitional power, but were born of God. At least that is what the parenthetical statement means. Who were born not of these factors, but of God. In other words, their birth, the new birth, being born again is a result not of your own doing, that's the will of man, not of your parents' doing, that's procreation, not of your heritage, that's ancestry. I mean, think if you're a New Testament, or uh, think if you're a first century Jew and you're hearing Jesus and you're hearing the apostles say that the reason you're a child of God is not because of your heritage. Well, Naturally, the Jewish people responded like they did in John chapter 8 by saying, we have Abraham as our father. Jesus says, don't claim to have Abraham. That does nothing for you. Just because Abraham is your father, that doesn't mean that you're not a child of the devil. As John goes on, as Jesus goes on to accuse them of being. John chapter 8 verse 44. Now, faith is a gift Faith is that which God gives man when he is calling him, as we saw, invincibly by his spirit, by his power, and to salvation. And um, the fact that John goes on to talk about man's impotence, as he says here, that they don't come to the light. Look at what it says there in verse 19. He says, this is the judgment. Light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than the light, for their deeds are evil. So human depravity has a lot more to do than just with what men don't do, but what, what, what men actually do, which is instead of loving God, they love darkness. And so it's not that the sinner is in a neutral position. He is actually positively hostile to God, against God, in love with darkness instead of with God, instead of the light. Instead of loving the light, which here is ultimately represented by Christ, instead of loving Jesus Christ, they rather love darkness. Instead of loving the gospel, instead of loving the good news of what Jesus has done for sinners, they'd rather cling to their intoxication with sin. And so the impotence of man, the sinfulness of man, the depravity of man is the occasion of God's overcoming grace. And that is exactly what needs to happen. Because man is sinful, because man is depraved, God has to act in a way to overcome man's depravity. The other thing is that as, Paul, as John says here at the end of this passage in verse 21, notice how he ends the text, verse 21, he says, the one who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. Actually, there again, grammar is important 
Because really, the way the construction works, as many have pointed out, including D.A. Carson and Kostenberger and others, is that what this verse is saying is that a person who has done righteously, a person who has done good things, who loves the light, who comes to the truth, who comes to the light, is not a result ultimately of their own doing. But it's actually, the translation should be, that has been accomplished by God or through God. In other words, God is the one who is getting the credit for all of it. So, what he's saying is that God receives the glory not only for regeneration, God is receiving the glory for our sanctification and for the whole Christian life. Your deeds have been done by the power of God. That is what is fueling your life. It is only the principle of God's power and spirit working in your heart as uh, even Paul goes on to say in Philippians chapter 2, verse 13, it is God who is willing and doing in you. He is the power that gives us impotence. So, or that gives us impetus, rather. He is the one fueling our Christian life. And that gets to, of course, the doctrine of perseverance, as we saw. So what John is saying is that because God is working in you, you will not fail to come to the light. And because God is working in you, you will not fail to stay in the truth. God will keep you to the end precisely because he is the one at work in us. So I want to focus on the gospel now more broadly and ask some questions of the gospel and say, how does our gospel, therefore, differ so the first thing I want, to talk, I want to tackle is the gospel and the cross. At the very center of our gospel message is the cross work of Christ. The cross is uppermost. The cross is central. The cross is everything. Let me put it in Paul's words. He says in 1 Corinthians 2.2, I have determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And so we had better find a way to be cross-centered in our lives. We had better find a way to say, as it comes to our evangelistic zeal, what our message is, is the cross. The cross, the cross, and the cross. And what does that mean? It speaks of all of Christ's person, all of Christ's work as our prophet, priest, and king, as our sacrifice, as our atonement, as our propitiation, all of the glorious doctrines that are connected to the cross. I've, wrote a, I've written a whole book on this verse, and um, please pray for that. That's a shameless plug for my book, which is right now in the hands of PNR, and they're looking at the manuscript. Hopefully they publish it. We'll see. Now, the cross can either be conceived of in one of two ways. The cross, again, is either God's experiment to see who will believe in his son. The cross is either a gamble on God's part if God has not determined beforehand that people would indeed believe in his son, then, as the open theists conceives, it is possible that no one could have ever believed in Jesus so that he would have died for nothing. But we know for a fact, according to Scripture, that Jesus did die for someone. He died for his people. He died for his sheep. He died for his elect. 
First, or Matthew chapter 1, verse 21, he dies for his people. Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 10, he dies for the elect. Acts chapter 20, verse 28, he dies for his church. And so, therefore, the cross is not a gamble. The cross is not an experiment. You know what the cross is? The cross is not even an offer. It's not even an invitation. The cross is a payment. The cross is a, 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 a ransom. It is the payment, the purchased price for God's own possession. In other words, the cross is an infinite payment for an infinite cost incurred by an infinite sin, follow with me, that provokes an infinite wrath that can only be averted by an infinite, infinite propitiation through the infinite sacrifice of the infinitely righteous Son of God. That is what the cross is. The cross is not just a sentimental emblem of God's love and kindness. It is the payment. It is the price. It is a display, yes, of the love of God, but also of the curse of God. As Scripture says, fundamentally, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. This is what Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. This is what God did in his son. He sent his son into the world for people that are rightly and justly cursed because of their sin. And God sends his son, as he says here in Galatians 13, or excuse me, Galatians 3, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? Having become a curse for us. And this is quoting Deuteronomy, where in Deuteronomy, a person who is cursed on a tree because he's hanging on a tree is literally in the covenant community. If you were hung on a tree, you were looked upon as, as if God himself had abandoned you and cursed you, you see? And this is exactly what Jesus did in our place. He stood accursed of God, as it were, smitten, cursed, forsaken, as Isaiah tells us. Another verse, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. So you see, the cross is about substitution. That's what happened at the cross. There was an exchange. There was a substitution. There was a vicarious atonement where somebody stood in your place. Isn't it wonderful? I don't know about you, but when we worship and sing those songs, I like to think all of this is for me, for me, for me. You did it for me. Hallelujah. Christ is all I have. Hallelujah. Christ is my life. It's for me. He did it for me. And if you're in Christ, that's the way that you should be thinking. He was my sacrifice. He was my, he was my substitute. He was my lamb. God provided him for me so that I wouldn't have to stand in that place of curse, that place of judgment, that place of wrath. He, he, he took the full brunt of the wrath of God in your place. And as Paul goes on to say there in 2 Corinthians, how should we not live for him? How should we not live for him? So 
Another verse that's very important here is 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, Peter says that he himself bore our sin in his body on the cross, on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you are healed. And if you're keeping your eye on the ball here, listen to the language of Peter. It is very Pauline, right? So that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. That is an echo, if you would, of Romans chapter 6, that we would no longer be slaves of sin, but that we, we would become slaves of righteousness, right? That having been united to a death like his, we will be united to a life like his. That is very Pauline, and that's exactly what Peter is doing. And actually, what Peter is doing here, as you know, is quoting Isaiah 53, where in Isaiah 53, the suffering servant is suffering in the place of the group that the prophet Isaiah identifies as the many. Verse 11, he dies in such a way that he justifies the many. Who is the many? Remember this about biblical theology. Oftentimes, with the, Old, the Old Testament asks, the New Testament answers. Who is the many? The many is his sheep. The many is his people. The many is his elect. The many is the church. The many is his bride. The many is his nation. And what is God doing here? He is amassing and collecting and creating a new humanity in Christ. And that is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 through 10. A whole new nation of his people. Beautiful, wonderful, far from the generic emblem of the love of God that many have made the church or many have made the cross into. The cross, not in an indiscriminate way, but the cross in a very discriminate way is aimed at the redemption of God's people. And so how might this affect your gospel call? How might this affect the way that you present the cross the cross is a payment for sinners. And so we have to be very careful not to present the cross in an, in a, in a, uh, uh, in an indiscriminate way. And what, am I, what I mean by that is we have to be careful not to tell people or assure people that Christ died for them. It was Ray Comfort many, many years ago who helped me so much with his teaching uh, hell's best kept secret. And if you haven't listened to that, you must. In that teaching, Ray Comfort says, nowhere in scripture do you find somebody approaching a person and telling them, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. And he's right. There is no precedence of that in scripture. But even further than that, there is no precedence in scripture for any apostle or anybody in the Bible going up to somebody and telling them, Jesus died for you. No one does that in the scripture. What you find instead are statements of Jesus dying for his people, dying for his church, laying down his life for his friends, laying down his life for his sheep. But no one is given a, this, this, this uh, a specific application of the cross to them personally. The reason this is so dangerous, folks, is because you give people false assurance. I mean, think about it. You're witnessing to somebody. You're sharing the gospel as we were last night. 
and you're talking to a sinner that is steeped in his sin, and you tell them, Jesus died for you. So why are you living like this? So what you've done is you've told them everything that Christ did on the cross, the atonement, satisfying the wrath of God, removing the wrath of God, that is for them. But you don't know that it's for them. And that's why none of the apostles would ever go around telling people specifically that it is for you specifically. We don't know that. As Spurgeon has said, God did not put a yellow stripe up the back of the elect so that we just go around lifting up people's shirt to see who's elect and who's not. No, we don't do that. Instead, we give a general call to all people. So your gospel presentation might be something like this. Jesus died for sinners like you and me. If we repent and believe, we will be saved. Now, that is a much more biblical approach than to assure with absolute infallibility that Jesus died in that person's place. I would never do that to somebody. I would never want to give somebody false assurance so that when they're living in their sin, they got to get out of hell free card and they can only say, you know what? Jesus died for me. I know I'm, I know my life is messed up, but, but Jesus died for me and everything's going to be okay. I've had people tell me that in situations. I've been at UNT preaching in the midst of a hundred students and I'll have somebody tell me, yeah, but he died for us, <laughs> which they mean that therefore I can live however I want since the death of Christ has already been done on my behalf. See, it can become a license for people if it is not applied in a biblical way so that we don't want to provide the atonement and what that means for somebody who is not elect. And therefore, because we don't know who is elect, we don't apply it to anybody specifically. I know that the atoning work of Christ is for you if you're a believer. If you're a believer. And that's what you find. You find the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians. Turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. It is only on the basis of people's profession. It is only on the basis of people's faith that the Apostle Paul was able to surmise that people were, in fact, chosen by God. Look at, uh, let's just read 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 2. We, we, we give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, your labor of love, and the steadfastness of your hope in Christ Jesus in the presence of God and, and Father, knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. And the literal, I mean, you know, this is one place where I disagree with the NASB because it should be rendered his election of you. That really is the way that I would want it translated. But that's what it means nevertheless. It was, look at it, it was on the basis of their, of their, of their life, of their, of their fruit. They bore fruit. They had a valid testimony. They had a life that was conforming to the gospel. And only on that basis could Paul have a general certainty of people's election. That's why I, as a pastor, can tell you to reflect on your election. Take hope in your election. Be confident about your election. You know, take, you know, let election comfort you as you go through 
life's trials. But if you have no fruit, if you have no life, if you're not conforming to the scriptures, if your life is not in conformity to the will of God, then assurance can quickly be eroded. Eroded. So this brings up the question now of repentance. We move from the cross to the point of repentance, and how does it differ? How does it differ? Really, the doctrines of grace provide the bedrock for the doctrine of repentance. We know that because man is radically depraved, because man's will is in bondage to sin, and because man is totally incapable of pleasing God, that God has to act and God has to give man the power to repent. And that's exactly what he does. Acts chapter 11 Verse 18 says this, when they heard this, they quieted down and they glorified God saying, well done, God has granted to the Gentiles also repentance leading to life. You see that? How does repentance come? By God granting it to a person. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 2 because there you have a really exhaustive point um, that's important because it involves evangelism. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 24. This is great because it covers the whole evangelistic scope here. Not just the, not just the task of evangelism, preaching the gospel, but also the demeanor, the character, and the nature of the evangelist. It says in verse 24, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wrong, with gentleness, correcting those that are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. You know what's so powerful about repentance? The word that it, the word that, uh, uh, that Paul uses here when he says that they may come to their senses is exactly the term that Luke uses when he talks about the prodigal son, when he's in the, when he's in the, the pigsty wallowing in the mire. It says he came to himself. He realized, what am I doing? Where, look where I'm at. He had a, he had a sanctified self-awareness. Look at the condition that I'm in. And that's what we try to urge people to. Understand your sin and your misery in the presence of God. See what, what a miserable condition you are in outside of Christ. In other words, we're, we're hoping and praying in the spirit of 2 Timothy 2 that God will grant them repentance and so that they can come to themselves, come to the awareness of their real state in the presence of God because God has to grant them this repentance. In other words, it means that the will is fallen. There is a real sense in which we can say, man cannot repent. There's a Puritan who wrote a book called, I Can't Repent. And it's all about an exploration of the fallen will of man, that he's in bondage, that he's enslaved to sin. But today, in the church, many people act as if the will is free, the will is able, the will is powerful enough to decide the good for themselves. And the doctrine of free will has influenced evangelism ever since the days of Charles Finney. Well, going back to that, but I want to I pick on Charles Finney for a second. 
Charles Finney is known by many historians as the, 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 the father of the altar call. He invented the altar call, in other words. He invented what is now known as decisionism. The idea that you are saved on the basis of your decision to believe in Jesus Christ. And that that decision belongs to you as a divine right, as a natural right. Matter of fact, he says that man's ability is part of sound philosophy. <laughs> Notice he didn't say sound exegesis or sound theology. He said sound philosophy. Charles Finney had a lot of theological problems. He had problems with justification. He had problems with sanctification. He believed in total sanctification this side of heaven. In other words, Finneyism believes in sinless perfection, the idea that you can be rid of all of your sins this side of eternity. So many of the issues that Finney raised were problematic, and he believed that as long as people followed his steps, his recipe of the altar call, that that would change the world. And you know what? In one sense, he was right. In one sense, he was right. After Finney, who was uh, following after, why did Finney come about? Why did Finney do what he did? Why did he emerge? Because you have to understand that Finney was around in the 19th century, in the, uh, 19th century so 1800s. And so Finney was following after the legacy of Jonathan Edwards, uh, uh, John Wesley, and George Whitfield. So he came in what was known as the Second Great Awakening. The First Great Awakening was under the preaching of Edwards and Whitfield and men like that, men like Wesley. And after that revival time in colonial America and in Europe, Finney decided to start his own revival, which many would call a pseudo-revival that was based on the manipulation of the will and not the proclamation of the gospel. And so Finney believed that as long as we created the conditions for repentance, that in a sense, we could get man to repent. <laughs> and we see this today. Billy Graham has also helped to popularize the altar call. Calvary Chapel has also engaged in Finneyism. Greg Glory, the Harvest Crusades, these movements and the Southern Baptist Convention in many places, has, have all engaged in this unbiblical practice of an altar call where you say, if you step forward, make a decision for Christ, if you sign a card and repeat after me and say a prayer, then we will pronounce you a child of God. The problem with that is in the numbers. Ray Comfort has also done an excellent job of pointing out that after mass rallies, where thousands go forward in an altar call, very few of those people are ever found again in fellowship. They don't appear in churches. They don't go into membership. They don't follow through. In other words, they had a false conversion. But because they went down and they went forward and they went down into the baseball field or wherever they're having their altar call, they are assured that they are now children of God. I've been there. I've participated in it. I have seen it. You know, Greg Laurie at the Harvest Crusades uses all sorts of human man-made tactics and gimmicks to try to get people riled up to make that, that ultimate decision. The fireworks are sitting there and they're ready. 
They got the fireworks ready to, ready to go off as soon as the altar call is given and you have 10,000 people out in the, soccer, the baseball field or whatever. And so he's used motocross. He's used the celebrity. Uh, he's used celebrities as props to try to infuse people's desire to be a part of something. But my dear friends, I will remind you once again what repentance is. Repentance in the Bible is not an invitation. It is not an invitation. Mark chapter 1, verse 15, repentance, far from being an invitation, is actually an imperative. It is a command. In other words, the gospel is God's command to sinners. It's not asking you to repent. He is commanding you to repent. Jesus says here in Mark chapter 1, verse 15, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, that is an imperative verb, and believe in the gospel. So in other words, we are not seeking or inviting or asking or, 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 or trying to uh, uh, influence people's minds to make a decision. We are commanding them to repent on the basis of the consequences. He says in Luke chapter 13, verse 3, repent or you will perish. That is the imperative. But you know, sadly, in many of these evangelistic rallies, hell is ever hardly mentioned. The idea of perishing is scarcely ever brought up. Instead, you are, you are sort of brought into a, a raw, raw moment where your, your, your will is been being influenced to make an emotional decision and, 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 and there is a crowd and a mob mentality that arises out of that. And it wasn't until one theologian said it that snapped me out of all of that that said, you receive Christ where you're seated. You don't need to walk down any stairs. You don't need to run down any field. If you are genuinely being converted, if God is genuinely doing a work in your heart, you repent where you are. You don't need to go anywhere. And doesn't your testimony bear evidence of that? When I was saved, I knew nothing of church. I didn't know what a church was. I didn't know what pastors were. I didn't know anything about any of that. I didn't know that I had to go somewhere. I didn't know I had to fill out a card. I didn't know I had to follow some prayer, somebody's prayer. I didn't know that I had to recite a sinner's prayer. All I knew is that I had to fall to my knees in the corner of my bed and cry out for mercy and grace because I was condemned in the weight of my sin. I would much rather people sit in their seats at the stadium and have somebody like Greg Laurie or whoever else is doing this said, and if you know that you're a sinner and if you know that you're condemned under this, the weight of God's law and if you know that you're going to perish on the last day, repent now. Don't wait for a moment for the music to play. Don't wait. <laughs> Don't wait for an altar call to happen. If you're feeling, if you hear his voice, repent now. Command to repent. That's what Jesus did. He didn't invite to repent. He commanded it. You must. Somebody put it this way. Repentance is God's uh, conditions of pardon and peace before he comes to invade the world in judgment. So basically, the call to repentance 
The gospel is basically God sending a warning ahead of time and saying, you have been warned. You are now being called to repent because I am coming in judgment. And by then it will be too late. It will be too late. And so, folks, we can't turn repentance into a simple offer. Repentance is not that. We cannot produce repentance. Turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Because far from man-centered props, far from tricks or gimmicks or tactics, far from entertainment or far from peer pressure, okay, far, far from peer pressure, we are not, if we have a biblical ministry, we are not to engage in such tactics. We don't need any of those things. We just need the Word of God. We just need the manifestation of God's truth, and God's Word will do its work. I remember being at evangelism meetings where the pastor is saying, please, at this moment, nobody move or make any noise because there are eternal decisions on the line right now. So it's like, wait a minute. So if I get up and go to the restroom... Somebody's eternal destiny is on the line? <laughs> so if I cough or sneeze, I mean, that person may be ruined for all eternity. Only the most Arminian free will type of doctrine and worldview would ever say something like that. Would ever say, when people followed Jesus Christ, it was often in the midst of chaos. Mobs and riots and people, people stoning and, and, and opposition and ridicule. And there would be those that would come and say, I wish to see Jesus. I know he's hated. I know these people are persecuted. I know all of that, but we wish to see Jesus. There were those that would reach out to the hem of his garment. There were those that would cry out in the midst of the chaos and say, have mercy on us, O son of David. You see, because that is God-wrought salvation. That is a God-born repentance. And it is not because of the result of any man-made trick or gimmick. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 1 through 2, really gives us the basis for this. Therefore, since we have this ministry, as we received mercy, we do not lose heart. But we have renounced the hidden things because of shame, not walking in craftiness or adulterating the word of God, but by the manifestation of the truth commending ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. You see, all of this language is surrounding the biblical ministry of Paul. When he says that he has renounced the hidden things of shame, he's not just speaking of any, any shame in any context particular to any sin. He is talking about the things that would undermine biblical ministry. Remember in our exposition of 2 Corinthians, the whole letter is written almost as a defense of Paul's ministry, which was being undermined, which was being questioned. And so almost the entire letter of 2 Corinthians is written to defend the fact that Paul had a biblical ministry and that he did not engage in craftiness. He did not engage in deception. He says he did not adulterate the word of God. Adulterating the word of God means that you are using man-made tactics to spread your truth and that you are profiting from those tactics, mainly monetarily. And how many people do that today? 
They try to entertain you. They try to, they try to, uh, they try to uh, impress you with all of this pomp. And oftentimes what's behind that is a motive of trying to profit from the word of God. Arminianism presents repentance as an invitation. However, consistent Calvinism presents repentance as a command. And that's why Jesus commanded repentance. That's why Peter commanded in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, Peter said, repent. That's an imperative verb. Again, an imperative means a command. Repent, each of you, and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. It wasn't a suggestion. It was a command. It was not a suggestion. Last of all is the gospel and the glory of God because at the end of the day, what makes... What is different about a Calvinist presentation of the gospel, a Calvinist understanding of the gospel, and an Arminian understanding of the gospel is one that relates to the glory of God. In other words, it is the fact that God is preeminent. Calvinism is so much more, my dear friends, than than just the five points of Calvinism. If you would, Calvinism is an entire world and life view. The Reformed slogan, soli dia gloria, means that God alone receives the glory for all things. And that's what we want to do. We want, him, we want to give him credit for everything. We want to give him credit for salvation from beginning to end. Salvation, as Jonah tells us, is from the Lord. We did not bring ourselves into the faith, and we will not keep ourselves in the faith. First Peter chapter 1 says we are being kept by the power of God. That's what makes us to differ. You know, one thing that Facebook has done, not a fan of Facebook, I'm not a fan of social media, but what Facebook has done is has given me an, an ability to see where are these people now? Some of the folks that I knew 15 years ago in the faith, where are they now? You know where a lot of them are, sadly? Their Facebook profile now says atheist, now says deist, agnostic. Many of them have gone on to live lives of licentiousness, lives of immorality. In other words, apostasy everywhere. I I just see it everywhere. There was a season where I was just hearing, it just seemed so many people from my past that were apostatizing. And to think, what makes me to differ? Why haven't I bought into that heresy? Why haven't I fallen away into agnosticism or atheism? And you know what? It it has nothing to do with me. See, the glory all goes to God. The same thing for you. It is you did not outsmart your neighbor, and that's why you're a Christian. Because you're more intellectual, you're smarter and brighter. You took advantage of an opportunity they didn't take advantage of. No, my dear friends, we are here because God granted us repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth. It is not because we kept God's law. We can't keep the law. It is not because we deserve it. We don't deserve it. Many of us deserve more punishment than some of the people that will go to hell and be punished. And God decided to have mercy on us. We will, when we get to heaven, we will not be there because of anything that we have done. We will be there solely on the basis of God's good pleasure, that he is working all things out according to the wisdom of his will, his eternal wisdom. And therefore, the gospel and the glory of God means we have nothing to boast in, nothing to boast in. 
To, to fight for free will is to fight for the honor of man. To fight for free will is to fight for the boasting of man, boasting in your ability, boasting in what you're able to do to commend yourself before a holy God. But when we repent and believe, we know in the spirit of Jeremiah chapter 9 that we cannot boast in anything that we have. We cannot boast in our wisdom. We cannot boast in our might. We cannot boast in our riches. We can only boast in the Lord. As Jeremiah 9 says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30 says. Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, Paul says, he says, may it never be that I would boast, except, here's your only reason you can boast, except, he says, in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. That's why we can boast. The final thing is, is that in terms of salvation and repentance and a person converting under the preaching of the gospel, we have to understand what it is, that it is not an isolated event. It is not a man-centered event, what has transpired. It is not that just you personally encountered God, and that's as far as it goes. When a person repents, talk about everything tending to the glory of God. This is what Reformed theology teaches, that you, in, a, in essence, are part of a greater tapestry of the glory of God, that you are part of a greater picture, a greater plan. And what is that plan? That plan is God's plan of redemption, that great redemptive work that God is working all things out according to the counsel of his own Will And this is in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 9 through 12, that he works everything according to the purpose of his own will, after the counsel of his own will. Why? What is the purpose? So that the end of it, Paul says, is so that we would be to the praise of his glory. So we have to give God maximum glory for the gospel. That's the way it works. In God's universe, man is not at the center. Man is not central. He is not ultimate. He is not preeminent. God is preeminent. God is ultimate. God gets all the glory. And as Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 45, God will not share his glory with anybody else. He is zealous for his glory. And the reason why God is zealous for his glory is because if he were not zealous to protect his glory, God would cease to be God. He can't give his glory away because that would be idolatry. He can't give his glory away because nobody else deserves his glory. But you know what? We have the unspeakable privilege of participating in the glory of God. We have the unspeakable privilege of seeing God's glory. You know what's so wonderful about this is that in everything that God does, he means to bring us in and to make us part of it. And I tell you, when you're there and when you see it face to face and when you cast your crowns back at his feet, you will not be dissatisfied with it. Strangely, we are at our happiest state when God, to quote John Piper, is most glorified. That's right. It is a theocentric vision of all things. That's what Reformed theology means. 
That's what the gospel of Calvinism is all about.